Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We caught up today with Howard Klein and Rodney Hooper of RK Equity uh, for our regular lithium roundup. Uh, we talked through the macro, uh, also specifically about some uh, companies and some of the movements in the market at the moment, a lot of M&A happening. You can hear more from them in cruxinvestor.com forward slash club, where we provide exclusive content too. Plus there's commentary from experts from around the world on a variety of other commodities, uh, which is quite interesting. There are summaries of other interviews that we've done too, uh, to help speed things up. We've got training courses on there, help you with your own diligence uh, process. We've got detailed company reports and analysis in there too. But most importantly is a thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other in a nice, friendly, safe environment, free from trolling and abuse. And if that sounds nice to you, and I do hope it does, Go and try uh, join them at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Gentlemen, how are we? Very good, Matt. Nice to see you again. Happy New Year. Belated. It's already end of February, but it's our first uh, time on this year. Happy Easter. <laughs> you're always looking to the future. That's Rodney. You're always looking to the future. Um, hey, well, look, um, I, I had this lithium week this week. I spoke to quite a few companies, wanted to kind of build up a good sense of the, the, the picture of myself. You, you know those guys inside out. I, I hadn't you know, taken the opportunity before to kind of gather because lithium has been on a rip for the last three months. The great, the good, and the not so good all seem to benefit it. What's going on, Rodney? You're the macro guy. Yeah, look, as I, as I said last time, uh, well, the time before or every time in a hurricane, even a turkey can fly. So uh, everything is going to do a tailwind. But it looks as if uh, the downstream customers have left it so late on lithium that maybe every turkey will fly. So um, prices have run, but prices continue to run, and China's gone into the new year. So... Um, the latest uh, pricing we've seen from uh, the surveys is that carbonate in China spot price is up to 12.4 now. So um, that's up again. Hydroxide up as well, and hydroxide and carbonate up in the CIF Asia market. So, sorry, and spodumen. Now, we've, we've been saying for some time, if you look at where China spot prices are, spodumen can go straight to 600, no problems. Uh, and we've heard anecdotally, CIF to China's at 550. That has done also 30, 40%, but I think there's always a bit of a lag in the pricing agencies. But looking at it, uh, Matt, it looks as if, um, you know, it's quite conceivable that we could see $15,000 a ton for lithium chemicals, you know, in the not that distant future um, and spodumen also rising. So at those prices, pretty much every project gets off the ground. So, uh, you know, it, 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 it will mean a flurry and how it will cover the financings. But, um, you know, we always say it takes 18 months to two years to build a battery factory and a cathode plant. It takes five to seven years to build the mine. So we're already too late. Elon Musk is now talking about nickel as an issue when they haven't even completed Berlin and Austin and haven't produced a semi or a cyber yet. So... It looks like, you know, Robert Friedland and Revenge of the Miners might be upon us pretty soon. So that's been the strong tailwind, and I don't see it stopping. We've got our forecast, so EV sales of 5 million this year, up from 3.2 last year. And even then, 
there's scope, you know, to see even better. And then next year on the follow-on. So I think we're in a pinch. European CO2 emissions are here to stay. Uh, you know, OEMs might nudge towards plug-in hybrids to try and fudge the system a little bit. But, you know, lithium is, is I think, uh, come second half of the year, we really see hydroxide having an enormous run. We've seen nickel move, as you know. So, you know, there's a reason why they've run. And I think we're going to get the follow-through in pricing, certainly by the second half of this year latest. It's amazing. If you think think back to last year, lithium companies, you know, they, they didn't seem to be able to have conversations. Uh, they didn't seem to be able to communicate this this sort of inevitable time lag. And it's, it's definitely moved from a buyer's market to a seller's market now. People are throwing money at them. And, 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 what you, and what you see, Matt, as well, is that in China, it's the same every time. If prices are falling, they get their inventory out the door as quickly as possible when it falls week by week. When it turns, they hold back their inventory, and that's what you're seeing now in squeezing and squeezing buyers. But we did warn, and as did others, you know, lots of guys, um, well, not lots, but other guys who follow the industry closely, we said it's a marginal oversupply last year, and it was a, you know, uh, and then the market turned to 2019 was tougher. That was a tough year, but we st it was never massive oversupply, and we try to explain that. You know, five, ten, fifteen thousand tons of oversupply was causing havoc in the market. Now, you know, that's uh, you know, the market is is twenty five thousand tons a month last year, uh, and this year will be up maybe 30% on that. So how much is really a marginal oversupply? And now we're seeing it. And now, as you've seen, guys are holding back. People are, buyers are desperate. And my point has always been, maybe it'll change under the Biden administration, but in Europe, CO2 emission penalties aren't optional. They're here to stay. So if you don't meet your fleet criteria, you know, your cutoff, then you pay very hefty fines. And it's about $10,000 a car if you don't do it. So not finding battery cell supply is, is not an option for them. They've got to. They can pay They can pay up to avoid the fines. Okay. I mean, here's one thing, and I, you know, this, open, this is for both of you, really, um, but maybe start with Rodney, is having interviewed all of these lithium companies all in the same week, they're all talking the same game. They're going to be able to produce lots and lots of lithium. One, one company said they could supply the whole of the North America's requirements for the next 100 years, okay? So, so I, I guess I'd say, well, how much have they produced to date? Uh, and, and that's always, you know, you've got to raise that question. A lot of projects have potential, and, and this is why we find ourselves in this difficult predicament is, you know, some well-known, you know, personalities in the OEM world and elsewhere say lithium is everywhere. And then everyone says, fine, we don't need to bother. But producing battery grade where they're talking about parts per billion now in impurities, not parts per million, is tough. It's difficult. And ramping up is also not as easy as you think. You know, in the old days, plants were six, 8,000 tons. Now people are doing 25,000 ton a year plants. It's not straightforward to simply ramp and meet those specifications, and uh, and I think uh, I, I think yes, you know, companies could in time, but you know you've got to do it step by step and building, constructing, commissioning, ramping, and then qualifying material takes time. 
But once you've got it done, the margins are fantastic. And that's why people like this industry and, and like the company. Well, they're, they're fantastic when the prices and the margins are like they are t today or better, right? But if people are, are my, my the question I would love you guys to help me understand today is, are all of these companies capable of producing the sorts of quantities that they're talking about? You know, we've got some great salesmen out there. Um, and if they do, what's the implications to the marketplace? Because it's, it's not good if you've got oversupply. No, it, it isn't. But uh, you would have to, you would struggle to find historical precedent where someone has made the claims and executed on them. So we're saying, and it includes, you know, people we support and, and our clients or what have you, but there is an undeniable market. Lithium is the irreplaceable element, but it does take time to build up and ramp new projects and meet the specifications of what is required for ATO warranties and EVs or million mile batteries. And the time will come. I guess the point is there is still a happy place in between and I'll let Howard follow on shortly where they come short of their expectations but they're still making phenomenal margins and very good you know, EBITDA revenue but not reaching. So in other words, shoot for the moon and land in the stars story is, is you know, I guess possible here. Okay. I, we, we, we've got to go over to Howard. He's, he's ready to explode. Come on. No, well, well, the, uh, well, I'll just respond to that before I want to show you what I want to show you uh, more broadly. But um, lithium, there's a lot of lithium in a lot of places, but every project, you know, kind of starts with 20,000 tons, right? You know, and then you could build another 20 and another 20 and another 20 on top of that if you have a giant resource. Um, but any company that's claiming that like they can, as you just described, you know, supply all of North America that hasn't, you know, supplied anything yet. Right. You know, they, they have to first prove, uh, that they could do it once. Right. And then uh, in a green field, and then if it's a brown field, you know, that, that, that's great, but there's no, there's the cost curves rising it's the best assets are currently in production right so new assets that are going to come into production um even if they are very large uh they will likely be as high capex um and as high opex as the existing resources but the existing resources are not scalable enough so you have to have these additional resources so i always come back to and these numbers are going up albemarle increased their 2025 estimate of uh, lithium uh, carbon equivalent units to 1.14 up from like a, a, a million. So we've always been talking about 2030 needing 2 million. That number is going to be higher. But even at 2 million, one, you know, going from a market of 300,000, 1.7 million new tons equates to 50 to 75 new 20,000 ton projects. That's 50 to 75 projects, each costing $500 million or $600 million. So all of the companies that you interviewed this week and all of the ones that are on you know, the scoreboard, if you add up like Piedmont Lithium is, is one project, right? Frontier Lithium is one project, 120,000. So you need 50 to 75 of those. The incumbents, if you add up all of the Albemarle's and the SQM's, you add up all of them combined, it's maybe 10, you know, or, or 11. So all of these junior companies that you're interviewing, not all of them will succeed, but 
all of them have potential, right? You know, then they're, they're at various stages of development, um, some much more advanced than others. Rodney talks about it takes five to seven, in some cases, 10 or 12 years. You know, Lithium America has just got a permit in January for their Thacker Pass clay project. They're in year 10 and they're still several years away from producing anything. So companies like Piedmont, which only started four years ago, you know, if they're in production in two years, six years, that's like rocket speed, right? You know, that, that, you know warp speed. Um, but there are so plenty of companies that you interviewed with that are, you know, where Lithium Americas was 10 years ago, right? If they're in clay or, and then there's, you know, lots of DLE projects and the like. So they all have potential, but anyone who tells you that, like, don't worry, we got it, you know, our project, we're the best and we're, we're going to be able to supply hundreds of thousands of, of tons in a very short time frame. You know, I think it's, it's unrealistic. I mean, one of the clients of ours, which, you know, you interviewed, you know, E3 has a very large resource, but their PEA, I think is focused on 20,000 tons after that, you know, it's modular, but again, it's not, it's not disruptive in a CapEx or an OpEx perspective. It's just, it's disruptive in a sense of, you know, if you could do it there, uh, you, you then, you know, don't have to do it in Argentina or, um, you know, in Chile. So there's sovereign risk benefits, there's environmental risk benefits, et cetera. I think, I think there's one thing Anyhow. to add, uh, Matt, is if you can get uh, cost per kilowatt hour at the battery pack scale down to well below 100, there's a never-ending list of applications that you can use for lithium-ion battery. There's renewables plus storage. There's, you know, there's EVs, there's flying, there's robotax in a picket, you know, ferries. As Tesla, I mean, Tesla saying, you know, three terawatt hours or what have you, and the whole world, I think, needing something like 20 terawatt hours for everything. So if it's more about, you know, if you can get the cost of batteries down there, you'll need more than everyone's even wildest dreams there. But it's a question of getting the prices to that level. Uh, and that's that's a separate conversation. But in terms of demand, if you if you take most realistic people who've studied the industry for long enough, I would personally say that from next year we're in a structural deficit. We're going to be short for three okay. to five years and and beyond. Okay, this is where it starts to get interesting. And, and I know Howard's going to be kind of kind of run through a few things with us in in, in a second, but. Um, so reminding people, we're talking to uh, Harold Klein, Rodney Cooper of RK Equity. These are some of the most sought after guys in the lithium space who run a consultancy to you know some of the best lithium companies, including P including Piedmont, uh, I must say, um, in the world at the moment. So you know these guys should be listened to. Now you give us a bit of a macro overview. You, talk, you we've you helped us with the kind of the d supply demand uh, fundamentals there. Some of, but you've also touched upon something which I, it came out this week, which was there's a bunch of technologies, right? It's like, okay, people understand hard rock, people understand brine, and everything in the middle is just like, oh, I don't know, right? So we, we talked clay stones and we talked DLE and we talked, we talked DLE hybrids, and you know, it's been a, a real learning this week. We've also seen some companies which are doing quite, okay, I'll just be specific American lithium. I've got a proposed deal on the table with Plateau Energy Metals um, coming together. And it seemed like, I just wondered how many more of those uh, 
comings together in whatever shape it takes, whether it be JV takeovers, whatever whatever that looks like, will there need to be to solve technical problems where companies are perhaps have talked a good game in the marketplace but haven't actually cracked it in terms of how they can extract economic levels of uh, of lithium with the right levels of impurity uh, without any impurities in there. Do you think we're going to see more M&A or mergers or that kind of activity in this space um, to bef- before the year's out? Let me answer that because um, uh, I have some view on that American lithium and uh, plateau uh, uh, merger. But w- w- what I'll say is uh, we were talking about turkeys flying in hurricanes and there's on our scoreboard, there is a, a wide disparity that there are some companies that are very high quality, not well promoted, uh, but have been kind of, I think critical elements in frontier are, are examples of tortoises, right? You know, we, we call them. And then there are some other companies like American Lithium and Noram Ventures and a few others that like just came out of nowhere. Like they weren't even on my scoreboard um, last year. Right. And I look at them and all of a sudden they have massive liquidity and very big market caps. And then I look up the filings and I say, like, well, this like it doesn't compute. Right. So uh, in a lot of cases. Right. So there are some names on the script. So that's very that's why it's very important, you know, to be you could easily get caught up. We've been in a boom before and it's very important because now relative value matters here. So the answer to your question is, I think, yes. Uh, in um, 2015, it was a bear market for lithium. I was representing Western Lithium, which was the Thacker Pass project. And Lithium Americas had an Argentine project and it was before Macri and everybody, like everyone hated lithium, everyone hated Argentina. Um, but Western Lithium had a relatively high market cap and Lithium Americas had a relatively low market cap, right? And they decided to merge, you know, so high market cap and they paid a big premium, 55%, you know, premium. It was kind of a merger of equals. And it's funny because uh, Macri then took over every, there was an Argentine rush, but what was thought of as the flagship was the clay project, right? And then it became Argentina became the flagship project. And now they're saying, you know, Thacker Pass is again <laughs> the flagship project, but um, that has worked actually. That wasn't like two crappy companies coming together or one crappy company, like with a high market cap, you know, buying or merging with a, you know, maybe a slightly better project. So I think there is, and we're talking to some companies like this where, um, they're undervalued or, um, and, you know, so yes, there's going to be financial engineering and creativity out of Vancouver and Perth. Um, you know, to kind of because these are illiquid securities and there are some people very sophisticated in, in navigating, um, you know, creating highly liquid, you know, stocks and stories and narratives that um, and then using that currency to actually get a better project. So I don't know American Lithium super well. I don't know Plateau Energy, you know, super well, but I, I sense what you had there was a richly valued currency and a a, a lowly valued, you know, they had a change of CEO in Plateau. I know you interviewed, um, uh, you know, so they they had a CEO gap, right? And 
So anyway, I, I, I'm following that. I don't know the ultimate outcome of that of that deal, but yes, I think you will see more of that type of activity um, in this market, and uh, some of them will succeed, and some of them won't. Um, but I think the tailwind of the higher prices that um, Rodney was talking about, and the liquidity coming into the sector, I think these th- you know, and the ability of companies to raise capital is high now. So things can things were undervalued for a very long period of time they could st- stocks can stay overvalued for a period of time in in a risk on market like we're we're finding ourselves but if you care about actually a company and a project that is going to become part of the supply that's where we focus. We focus on companies which we genuinely believe are going to, likewise, uh, you know, be real. And 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 there's a number of companies that you interviewed, and a number of companies that are on our scoreboard where um, I, I, I you need to be very very careful. Well, th- exactly. That's that's why I think we're kind of similar minds. We, we, we invest on a fundamentals basis. I think we, you like dealing with companies, whichever. A good, good set of fundamentals, and and I want people on here to understand what companies like that look like in the lithium space. That's not to say, and I know you're indicating indicating this or intimating this as well, that you can't play the game of you know riding up some of these flying turkeys whilst the market is gigs. They are going to get financed, but at some point they're also going to get found out. So unless you've got a strategy for that, it could be become problematic. So why not bet on a good horse out of the gate? Um, yeah, look, but Matt, to be fair, uh, and you will know this from your long history, I'm sure, of looking at mining companies, and I certainly have, is that the highest leverage is always in an early stage company that then goes through expanding a resource and doing feasibility. So going through that process and, and creating value there, you can hide quite a lot of things and get a big uplift in your NPV or whatever you want to do. So. The real issue, I guess, comes down to when, um, when you, you get to the point of, uh, of, of production, and that's, I guess, when you know, the truth is told. But um, one thing I wanted to add, just in terms of saying, will there be further mergers? The one area I'm, I'm interested to see is how strategic is Europe? Because all of the big, none of the big players have a strategic foothold in Europe, and it's going to be probably the biggest EV market in the world by 2030. In fact, it should be 2025, possibly even. So that being the case, how important is it to supply your downstream customers? Because Europe has got on it. There are five cathode plants that are either planned or under construction. There's obviously a lot of battery cell plants and EVs. So can you stay out of that market and can you supply that market ex-Europe? Because Europe's making a lot of rumbling noises about wanting you know, the European Raw Material Alliance, et cetera, saying they want domestic supply. Now, they've allowed people into that alliance and they've allowed them from all and sundry. But the intention is still to, where possible, secure localized supply. So I'm interested to see if that creates a move because I believe that the cathode and OEM players in Europe are going to make a move upstream to secure their supply, given how tight things are going. Oh, well, I, I was kind of intrigued by So we also interviewed European Metals. Uh, they're a good company, good CEO. And you kind of, but what he did a really good job of doing was explaining the ecosystem in Europe before on a macro basis. 
in terms of what some of the proposals are, because nothing's set in stone yet. There's some big, big indications, and there's a lot of a lot of funds being set up with hundreds of billions of dollars in it, and lots of people with their hands are hoping to grab some of it because it's nice, cheap, easy money. Um, uh, free in some cases, with a lot, lot, lot of subsidies, etc. But there's not a lot of actual miners in there based in Europe. So there are going to be lots of friendships made across the water, I suspect. I think there's going to be a lot of Canadian and North American companies uh, with a European passport. Possibly, but that's why we have backed European metals because they are a, and it's, you know, it's a historic turn mine in Czech, you know, tax rates much lower than Canada and, and Australia. It's 19% is the corporate tax rate there. Um, you know, you've got a lot of German skill just over the border because it sits on the border. So SMS Group looking to give a turnkey, you know, guarantees on on EPC and on on the final product. So that's why we think, a, a, you know, a project like that, that's a 25,000 ton a year on an eight, a one eight-hour shift can go to 50,000 tons on two eight-hour shifts and produce 50,000 tons. Now, like your you know, previous guests, you know, I don't want to do a lot of hand wavering and gesturing and unrealistic things, but the point is, you know, they made historically some, you know, companies made lithium out of that mine back in the 40s. So it's been done. Um, and strategically, look at the size of resources. You've got to think about it. Yes, there's Jadar, but this is bigger than Jadar. And Jadar doesn't sit in the EU. You know, it has its own, you know, issues to deal with and, and feasibility to get through. So how important and strategic are assets that can actually produce what Howard talks about in terms of size? Well, I think, you know, they are. And if OEMs decide they want a very small footprint, they want localized supply if they can. And you've got this, you know, grouping around Germany where you've got the cathode and not far Poland, where, where have you, and, and, you know, like Czech-German border for lithium, then will that matter? And, and then it's a question of, you know, you know, I don't know how strategics will, will feel about that if they are, if they see it possible and they're excluded out of that market. Okay. Well, I just want, just want to, just for the sake of openness here as well, because I, I interviewed them, uh, I think just this morning, actually, um, <laughs> early hours of this morning, because uh, I think the CEO's in uh, Perth. Um, can you just give us the names of the companies that you represent? Because people, just to be open and transparent, you know, because they, they may want to discount some of the ebullientness of your conversation, maybe. <laughs> um, we're well, certainly Howard, he's a very excitable man. Um, but you try and be as unbiased as possible because we're going to run through a bunch of companies here. So we're not, we think we need all of yeah, the yeah, above. Yeah. Right, we need all of the above. So it's first, you know, supporting the lithium industry. But give us the names of the ones that you're working with at the moment, please. Happy to do that. We are picking our clients pretty much. Uh, that doesn't mean that uh, if we haven't picked them, there, there aren't good projects out there. Of course, there there are, but uh, we're being very selective. So we are uh, uh, representing uh, European Metals Holdings and Frontier Lithium, Critical Elements, um, E3 Metals, uh, Piedmont Lithium, um, you know, we've, uh, done some works, you know, selectively with Savannah, um, you know, and, uh, I think those are, uh, I would say, did I say them all? Of the lithium ones, that we, the, we, the lithium ones that we're talking about here, that, that's, uh, the, the, our biases are, um, you know, with, with them. 
Okay. Um, I'm okay. also invested. I'm invested in you know mineral resources and um, a couple of other companies that are not our clients, but uh, so we, we like that story a great deal. Okay. And Albemarle and Livent. Hey, so what happened? Tell me this then. So while you're on, so I was talking to I think it was E3, and they they well rather Livent opted to not continue that relationship because they needed to um, go and look at things back at their own base with regards to, I guess, skills, well, skill set and um, technology. They, they were lacking the time or money to be able to focus on work, continuing to work with E3. So any, any insight there? What's going on? I think uh, Livent, um, I think first hats off to Chris Dornbos for negotiating a fantastic deal with a strategic. I've never seen a junior have something in, in so much their favor, like let's say great negotiation on their part or ineptitude on Livent side, you know, in negotiating. And it's not, it's not the only example of that ineptitude. I mean, I can't believe that Livent has not yet issued equity like Albemarle and SQM, you know, are doing. Um, you know, and they issued a convert, you know, last year, you know, with a conversion price of 837. So uh, on balance, I've been a bit disappointed from, you know, I call him the silver tongue at Goldman Sachs, right? You know, the M&A banker, um, you know, the chemicals banker. Um, I like Paul Graves, but, uh, you know, he's been in the penalty box a bit, although he's getting, you know, as the only pure play, you know, the stock has risen despite having absolutely atrocious, um, you know, financial results. So uh, as a result of those atrocious financial results, um, they were only invested one and a half million dollars out of the five and a half that they were supposed to give E3. On the other hand, they were invested 10 million. They actually were owed 10 million at Namaska and they had a penalty 10 million. So they were actually a secured creditor of $20 million in Namaska. Namaska got taken over by Investment Quebec as well as Pallinghurst. And that's moving forward, right? That's a relatively advanced project, more advanced than um, E3 is, and it's conventional hard rock in Quebec. And I think uh, Paul Graves and Livent are being pushed by Tesla. They're only three suppliers of you know battery grade hydroxide. And so they've put on hold their investments in Argentina. And they said, if, if we want to continue to be relevant in the, in the lithium industry, we need to be you know, we need to be able to ramp up our our, our capabilities pretty quickly. And uh, because they were owed $20 million and because this hard rock to hydroxide in Quebec is a much more realistic, um, you know, by 2023, I think E3 is a great story, but the, the, the volumes will probably be 2025 and beyond. So Livent basically said, I don't have any money. Um, <laughs> it's promising technology. But I'm not going to put in another four and a half million dollars. Um, I'm going to be focusing uh, my attention on Quebec, Hard Rock, and uh, I think Livent. You know, they're in it now for three months um, in Quebec. They announced an offtake deal with BMW. BMW is one of the few companies, in addition to Tesla, who actually said we're going to be doing um, you know our procurement ourselves. BMW in 2019 like made with big fanfare, you know, a big deal for hydroxide with Ganfeng. I think this deal, which they didn't disclose very many details, but I think it's an ingredient with BMW and Livent with a, a Namaska, Quebec, hard rock to hydroxide focus 
the volumes that they're asking for can't be done, you know, just from the Argentina. So I think Liven starting to put the pieces together to advance that Quebec hard rock project. So that that's why they left uh, E3. And actually the benefit for E3 is that actually they're, as I understand it, they're in talks with a number of other strategics and having Livent in there with an option to go to 19.9% um, was a bit of a hindrance. So I think they got 12 months of IP, right? And a million and a half dollars for free. Livent walked away with zero. So um, I think uh, people have understood that message and E3 stock has Formed, you know, phenomenally well. We've been, we were talking about this stock at eight million market cap. It's now like you know ten times that. This has been like a, a ten bagger success for us, um, and I think it has you know potentially another ten ten bagger to go from from here. Yeah, and no, I, I was impressed with him. It, like he's, he looks like a young kid, but he's been around the block and he's smart. I kind of like I kind of enjoyed the chat. He is smart, and and look, actually. Um, if you don't mind, Matt, I want to go through some of these spreadsheets and kind of like, sure. you know, um, that, that I have and, and just kind of like help frame, you Dude. know, the stories because DLE is getting traction and Clay is getting traction much more so than we we had. But to, to see it on paper, uh, you know, from a market cap, like what's the market telling us? Um, I think it's a useful exercise to go through these. So I'm going to start, I'm going to go through three spreadsheets here. So the first one is the EV themed SPAC spreadsheet. So the special purpose acquisition companies in America are just absolutely astonishing in, in how much money is being raised. So this is 2020, 2013, you know, into 2020, 21. So look at how much money is being raised here. In 2020, $76 billion has been raised in SPACs in aggregate, um, and that was as of January, that's a Goldman Sachs statistic. Um, what this is here is all of the EV battery themed SPACs. So I track them like I track all of the lithium companies. And on the top here, these have been consummated and these are in process, okay? So those that have been consummated include QuantumScape, Nikola, MP Materials and Rare Earths. This is in blue, because I'll talk about that in a second. So I'm just tracking these from a, a like a market cap perspective day and what the valuation was when they merged and how much money they raised, right? So many of these companies are pre-revenue, just like junior mining companies are. And SPACs are actually reverse takeovers, just like Canada and Australia, you know, do reverse mergers all the time. This is just it on steroids in in, in sectors that are, um, you know, ESG, sustainability, EV, all the success of Tesla has led to a lot of these companies were raising money, venture capital privately, their EV stories, their LIDAR stories, their charging infrastructure stories, um, their uh, recycling stories. Um, and if you look in aggregate, so the average pro forma equity value of, of the SPACs that have been consummated was $2 billion. Today, the average market cap of these companies is $6 billion. The average cash raised is $580 million. Okay. Now, these guys are coming to market. The beauty of the SPAC compared to a regular IPO is that you're allowed to put forecasts into the market, your pro forma EBITDA. So, this is the 2024 revenue and 2024 EBITDA forecast of all of these companies. So a company like QuantumScape 
by 2024 still has zero EBITDA, okay? But they have a 25 billion market cap. But a company like Fisker, you know, or uh, Luminar, I mean, the, the average EBITDA is, is $388 million forecasted, right? So they're trading at a 20 times market cap to 2024 EBITDA. So when you go back to the lithium companies that we talk about, we have a benchmark, 20,000 tons you know, for 20 years. Um, if you're selling your product for 12, 14,000 a ton, and you're producing it at five or $6,000 a ton, you should be making 200 to $250 million in EBITDA by 2024 or 2025. Now, why wouldn't you put a 20 times multiple on that Right, the likelihood that it's it's a the picks and shovels argument of of the EV theme. So MP Materials actually uses that. That's that terminology, the picks and shovels. Their rare earth magnet story. Okay, they're trading at twenty seven times, uh, you know, EV to EBITDA forecast based on prices of rare earths at the time of the IPO. Um, rare earth prices were uh, much lower, but they were forecasting them to kind of rise. So the 250 was based on a rise, which a lot of which has already happened. Um, but MP Materials is, is is a 7 billion market cap company, right? And we were just talking about E3 at a 70 million market cap company, right? Or Piedmont at a 700 million market cap company. Anyway, so that's that one's in blue, MP Materials. Another one in blue here is a recycling story. Um, this is lithium ion battery recycling. This just went public. It's raising $615 million at a pre-money valuation of a billion dollars. Okay. And the market, you know, have 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 traded this up. They're all all of these are trading up. So the average market cap of SPACs in process is now six billion dollars. If you add up all of these companies combined, okay, there's about, I don't know, 25 companies here, their equity capital formation is $22.5 billion, okay? Average per company, $700 million. So that ranges from this recycling company to also like Lucid is raising $4.5 billion. That's a mega SPAC. But most of these are like a billion market cap raising 600 million. And they're just telling the market by 2024, we're going to have on average, you know, here's 460 million. But that's weighted heavily, you know, for this arrival, you know, 3 billion here. On average, these are like 250, 300 million dollars. And this is 32 times market cap to 2024 EBITDA. So I'm sharing this with you because this is a U.S. capital market phenomenon, and the U.S. market is very liquid and buying into this EV theme. And um, if you're listed in the United States, you get this liquidity and you get these valuations, as I'm going to show you in um, the next couple of uh, spreadsheets. So I'm, I'm going to move now to spreadsheet number two. Lithium, this is lithium equity raises. This is maybe a bit small, um, but these are all the companies that have raised money since August of last year. Okay. Uh, so, and the total is $4.6 billion have been raised. Okay. And this is broken down by Rock, 52%, Brine, 32%, Clay, 13%, and DLE Brine, 3%. 
Okay. A lot of this is SQM and Albemarle. Albemarle just raised $1.5 billion and SQM is in the process of doing a rights offer for $1.1 billion. But if you look all the way down this list, many of the companies you interviewed uh, are here. So back to just raised $60 million to fully fund, you know, their clay operation with, with Ganfeng. Sigma raised, you know, um, you know, $33 million. Core Lithium, $31 million. Millennium, Millennial Lithium, 27. Standard, 27. Neolithium did two financings, 24. And then previously they did seven with CATL. So lake resources, critical elements, 12. So the market's open. A lot of these have been done in the last two months. So E3 did three financings, you know, 1 million, 4 million, and 4 million in October, December, and then February, right? So the market window is open and there's been some strategic deals here as well. You were talking about M&A. I just want to comment about, um, in Savannah's case, uh, a, a GALP, you know, a, um, uh, a Portuguese oil company is taking a 10% stake at a project level. Um, Rodney talked about EMH. EMH has Chez, a Czech utility, right? So you're having European strategics kind of come into European projects. And then you mentioned American Lithium and Plateau, but an interesting deal uh, was Piedmont coming into Sayana and getting basically 25% at project level, 19.9 at parent level, you know, for $12 million, they got 40% of all the economics of, you know, this Quebec story. So they were kind of distressed. And I thought that was a very astute, it was like a Ganfeng like deal. You got offtake and you get project stake and you get parent stake. So it was very innovative of, of them to do that. But Transactions are happening. M&A and capital raises, you know, are are happening. All right. So so this is the third scoreboard, which is, you know, I publish these on Twitter and, and on LinkedIn. Um, so I did this just for you, Matt, February 25th. I usually do it at the very end of the month. Um, you know, this has the current market cap, current share price, one month performance, year to date, and also kind of from September 30th, which was just after battery day. If you look down that line, everything's massively in green. You see uh, the bull markets happen. This is the location and by type. So this has the chemical producers here, you know, so Ganfeng, Albemarle, et cetera, the spodumene producers, mineral resources, Pilbara, et cetera. Then there's the emerging funded, you know, partnered, which is only Lithium Americas and Sigma. All those are now fully funded and kind of starting construction or in construction. And then the rest are these advanced development names, which we'll talk about in, in, in a minute. But over here, uh, I, I break it down by the emerging projects by Rock, Clay, Brine, and DLE Brine, okay? Rock is 4 billion, Clay is 2 billion, conventional Brine 1.8, and DLE is 1.4. What's notable here is that Clay and DLE Brine have come up very significantly from an emerging, um, from a market cap perspective. And Clay is higher than Brine, right? So development Clay higher than Brine. And a vast majority of that is Thacker Pass here in America. Um, and I've, the market, in my estimation, is valuing this at 1.3 billion compared to 900 million for their Argentine asset. So why is the market valuing a, a, an unproven you know, technology at such a high valuation? It's kind of like it's an unconventional unicorn. I believe very significantly it's because they're listed on the New York Stock Exchange. 
right? So going back to those SPACs that I just showed you, if you could tap into US liquidity with an EV themed story with a US asset, uh, you're going to get a high valuation. And likewise, Piedmont listed on NASDAQ. These are the only two developers that are fully listed in the United States. And they're the ones at the top of the scoreboard with American assets. Uh, I'll mention it to me when you, again, talking about relative value, um, I don't think Thacker Pass is a turkey, but I do think um, it, it is a, a very high valuation for a less probable project than some other projects. Like, for example, Bacanora is a very advanced clay. You interviewed Peter Secker. They're partnered with Ganfeng and they're trading at, you know, one sixth the valuation. They just raised money. You know, why is that? Well, part of the reason is because it's on AIM and AIM is a crappy exchange in general, right? Okay, that's just a fact. I know you're in London and you're smiling, but I know, I that's, agree with one you. Fact, <laughs> that, that's one reason for it. Management and, you know, and attention to kind of shareholder value is also important. I don't know why Bacanora chose to raise $60 million at the very depressed valuation when you have such a very obvious comp. Uh, in Thacker Pass. But, you know, in terms of, and I'm not advocating or recommending, you know, buying to you know, back in Nora, but uh, in terms of watching clay, uh, you know, th there's a very big valuation disparity between those two. In the case of um, Standard Lithium, actually, it's listed here at 338, but they only own 30% of their project, right? So if you were to divide 338 by 30%, that's like a 1.3 billion market value. So unconventional unicorns, DLE, Brine, and Clay are capturing the imagination on US equity markets, mostly in mining. If it's anything new, you give it at a discount. In America, if you have proprietary IP, you're doing something different, you know, you could get a much higher valuation. So I think a lot of companies, and we, you know, you asked us which companies are we advising. Every single one of them has great interest in listing in the United States. Will they pull it off in the way that Piedmont did, and in what time frame is is still to be seen? But all of them want to tap into U.S. retail and institutional. There's big, you know, there's the Reddit, there's stock twits, there's all sorts of interest in you know, EV theme story and a number of people are, um, you know, have cottoned on to the uh, the junior miners, right? Because Elon Musk is saying, uh, you know, mine more nickel, you know, they're confused by what he's saying on lithium, right? It's abundant, don't worry. At the same time, I'm building lithium hydroxide plant, you know, sourcing it with Piedmont, right? So they're, they're entering the lithium hydroxide business as they're entering the cathode business as they're entering the battery business, but they're not entering the nickel business, right? So why are they entering the lithium hydroxide business? Because they need to, there's not enough batteries and there's not enough lithium hydroxide, right? For their cyber trucks and their semis, they see that bottleneck. So that's the scoreboard. This is what we track, you know, so um, the Piedmont's on here, uh, uh, again, I mentioned it at, at the top, but companies, again, that, that, you know, these are our, our clients, so you take this with a grain of salt, but Critical Elements is a hard rock mine in Quebec, 191 million market cap, you know, that's you know, one fifth what a hard rock to hydroxide market cap, you know, Piedmont is, you know, likewise, 
Frontier Lithium, right? Uh, who you interviewed They're Where are they on here? They're 140 million market cap. These are all US dollar equivalent market caps. European Metals Holdings is only 146 million. So like, but these things have tripled or quintupled, you know, in three, oh, well, you know, it's gone up so much. Should I be chasing this? It, it, it's up so much, but European Metals Holdings should produce as much EBITDA as MP materials or thereabouts, right? Which is a 7 billion market cap. So there's, you know, as European Metals, you know, cultivates a U.S., um, audience, you know, and, and gets it possibly an ADR, right? And follows a path that Lithium Americas and, and Piedmont did, they can triple in value or quadruple in value this year, right? Or in the next 24 months, as long as they execute, right? Of course, as long as the tailwind to the lithium sector remains as it is, which I think it will be because prices are going up and Biden, you know, we're at the tipping point, right? So, the companies need to execute, but there, there's just there is some financial market kind of um, capital market savvy that that could be undertaken. But the U.S. market is valuing these things, you know, very highly, more so than the ASX, AIM, you know, or TSX do. Although the TSX, actually, if I can go back, what's important on the TSX, if you look at like Millennial Lithium, right? They did a deal, uh, but it had 50% warrant coverage at a 20% premium with 36 months, right? So that deal was done in February. That, that's four month hold paper, I think, right? So in four months time, you know, by June 11th, anyone who bought into that raise, you know, might be selling and holding on to their warrant, right? And likewise, um, Lake resources, you know, even critical elements and some of these. So you just you need to be mindful of when financings that were done. You know, there could be volatility in periods. Of, if you're looking to be a trader, um, it, you know, you might wonder why like E three stock fell all all this week after rising aggressively. You know, their four month hold of their October deal, um, you know, came freely trading on February twenty first. So that might be impacting. Uh, you know, the story just this week. And once that liquidity is absorbed, um, you know, who knows, it, it, it could it could rally again. Anyway, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But we keep track of this. We post this on Twitter, um, as I said, and LinkedIn. But uh, this is part of our research. This is we're not just advising issuer clients, by the way, we're increasingly advising on retainer a number of institutions, institutional investors, high net worth, you know, family offices who are very interested in the space and like seeing us on Crux and, and elsewhere and watching and saying, like, oh, well, we want to invest. What should we do? Um, and we're not financial advisors. So nothing, none of this is financial advice, but we do offer some bespoke advisory services to an increasing number of um, institutions and high net worth that are allocating real capital to the space. Fantastic, and and there's a lot more of them at the moment. It's it seems very peaky. I think you you get a lot of inbound, we get a lot of inbound, and it's just noticeable noticeable since battery day. The whole battery metals group have you know done exceptionally well, but I'm not sure anyone saw lithium happening so quickly. I, I take issue with your calling it peaky because I think it's really <laughs> I think I think it's really it's still early. You still need to be careful, but. The people are worried about inflation now. Uh, uh, you know, 
just big mining, Rio Tinto, BHP. Rio Tinto just had unbelievably fantastic results. And what did they do? They paid a huge special dividend, right? Amazon doesn't pay dividends, right? Google doesn't pay dividends, right? It's a big mining, you know, because BlackRock and others in London say, don't waste my money, you know, pay it back to shareholders. Why are they not aggressively investing in lithium growth, right? Or nickel growth. They're returning money to shareholders. And these stocks are, are they're still trading at six or seven times EBITDA, right? So I, I think they're fundamentally overvalued. I do believe uh, what Robert Friedland is saying and Benchmark Minerals is, is said the super cycle is not enough of a term, right? Mining megastorm, right? Is uh, Simon Moore's is, uh, 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 phraseology that I'm stealing. Um, I, I believe we're. Yeah, still look, in I mean, I think, I, I think Matt, uh, you know, as they say, the cure for low prices is low prices. And in order to incentivize enough of the raw materials required to come into production, you're going to need to see incentive prices come through. And are we there yet on lithium? We aren't. We're sort of getting there, but it's not there. So we, we expect to see. And like all good things, it is a specialty chemical, but it does behave like a commodity. You need to see the pendulum swing on, further onto the other side like you did in 2016 and 17, where prices got to unsustainably high levels and then you saw production come online. We need to get to the point where risk capital is going to get back into the sector and develop. Now, it's a telling sign that in in a market that's risen, that Albemarle and Livent are still telling you that they're not prepared to push the boat out and over and over invest. So they're very clear on how on what criteria they put money into the market. And Albemarle is always at least two times weighted average cost of capital, and they're prepared to sign long-term contracts and fixed pricing to do that, not necessarily what OEMs may be wishing for now, but that's how they do it. And in order to do that, you largely need ex-China thirteen to $14,000 drop And we're, we're not there on, on the CIF Asia price. Um, I think some contracts may or may not historically be at that level. So we're likely to see you know, some kind of a, you know, a, a blow up because we've seen, you know, EV sales finally meet their potential. And then, you know, and then we'll see who gets financed and how long that takes to come into production. The easiest route, of course, has historically always been, you know, in, in China, you know, you've got China speed in South Africa. I always say, if, if I got planning permission to build a block of flats down the road, it's going to take me at least three years. In China, they get permission in 12 months, you're staring at a block of flats. So we saw that in, in, uh, in converter capacity when the market blew out in 2016 and 17. They brought on material, they brought on conversion capacity quickly. But this time around, there's more criteria. People are saying they want localized supply chains. Europe, Europe is like adamant on it, and the US is as well. So can you just ramp up production in China and sell it elsewhere in the world when you use 60% coal and all sorts of things to produce? So that doesn't seem to, to wash this time around. So how quickly is supply going to re respond to demand under these investment, under this scenario? I think it's tougher than most people think. And that's why we say strategically, 
RKO Equity is built on North American and European supply chains. That's what we built it on. We've stayed out of China. We've stayed out of other regions. We say these are the two. When EVs finally are compelling enough after 2024, let's say, when on a sticker price and on an all-in cost price, they are the superior product. You have to, you know, are you going to, you know, allow yourself uh, to be reliant on external supplies or are you going to do what they did with fracking and other things is look for energy independence and in this case, raw material independence? It kind of, kind of brings full circle around to the conversation we had at the beginning with regards to the European ecosystem. And obviously, you know, I think we're talking at the time with regards to the European metals, but um, you said Europe has got a grip of this. They are putting things in place. They're, putting, they're setting themselves some targets. They're putting these big funds and budgets in place. Uh, they're working together to create this, this big supply chain, but it's still not going to be enough in terms of some of the, some of these, uh, battery metals just aren't going to be able to be sourced locally. Okay. Um, so, you know, they are going to have to form partnerships outside. Do you think companies coming from outside of the EU are going to find the same level of, um, help? from the, the funds, from the countries, from the ability to get things done quickly? Or is that also going to be a problem? Well, well I think it's, it's probably going to be collaboration. So what people are looking at is, you know, and you know, Canada is a, is a great source of spodium and concentrate. It, a lot of it is, is very low iron and so on. So it's a fantastic product. Is if you have a partner in Germany or wherever else, then... You know, they are likely to, one way or the other, there's likely to be the support to see that production come online. The thing that you, you do have to always be cautious of is planning permission. And as far as I understand in Germany, you cannot backfill a pit with material that wasn't mined there. So you can't bring spodumin from somewhere else, which is 94% waste, and put it through a chemical converter and then tip the, the, the waste into an existing you know, pit, and, you know, an unfilled pit, because my understanding is that's not allowed. So you have to work through those challenges and you've also got to convince the people who live near there, or if it's in an industrial area, great, but if, you know, if there's any sort of residential around it, then you've got to convince them to allow it and how are you going to treat your, treat your waste tailings, so on. Yeah, I, 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 no, I, I get that. I was coming at more from the financial point of view. Is and can could companies in North America tap into the European ecosystem and receive the same sorts of uh, you know cheap funding, access to capital? Yeah, so I think if like Saxony Anhalt has been trying to attract quite a lot of people, so I think if you say to them, you're going to come and put a chemical converter you know, in the state and so on, that they will then, you know, give you some kind of, there are breaks that they're given. But what about, you know, what, the, what if a company I, I, could say, just let me ask this, I want to be clear in my head, it's like, what happens if, say, a Canadian company says, we're, we're going to produce whatever, it's the spodumene here, um, we need whatever, a couple of hundred million bucks, we'll go find a couple of hundred million bucks, and then we'll export whatever <laughs> over to you for, um you know, production into like a hydroxide, for instance, are you going to see money moving across boundaries because they, just the fact that they can't do it themselves in Europe? You mean a European will fund a project in another country? Yeah. 
I would say that's no dice, but that's me. Okay. I, I, I don't, I think it's conceivable. There are some companies in, let's say, Ontario or Quebec that might supply, or Argentina, you know, that might supply Europe um, in some way. And if they finance a conversion facility in Europe, could with a partner that's sourcing the supply from a mine somewhere else, can that support be passed along to the you know Canadian or Argentine project? Possibly, right? It's possible. It's possible that you'll have a joint venture ownership of the mine, the miner in the refinery, in a similar way that Pilbara is looking to have a joint venture with POSCO in, in their refinery. So if there's cross ownership, right, and it's it's perceived as an integrated project, then I think um, maybe indirectly th- th- those companies would get money, but direct payment, I don't think so. But Quebec has been very um, forthcoming with funds. You know, Quebec is, is like Europe, it's French, right? So <laughs> they're doling out money there. And Ontario as well, you know, threw out some money to first cobalt, right? Might they throw some money into development of Frontier or some of the others? Very possibly, right? From an infrastructure point of view. Um, yeah, but Matt, uh, I think in, in, Matt, Matt was asking uh, how will Europe fund? Same no, 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 I, I, I know he was. But what I'm saying is, I, I think indirectly, possibly, but I also see various provinces in Canada and maybe the federal government. And there's also collaboration with the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is, I think, going to start funding U.S. projects. This new Department of Energy, uh, Jennifer Granholm, uh, is going to be bringing industrial policy like, you know, uh, European style. I think you're going to start seeing checks written in America. Uh, but it's also part of a coordinated U.S., Europe, Canada. We're all, you know, overly reliant on China, and we need not only a whole of government ourselves, but a whole of, um, you know, North America and Europe approach to solve this problem. Yeah, so the reason I ask is we, we saw that in the uranium space where you've got Australian companies with US assets all of a sudden qualifying for uranium inventory reserves, right? So you're kind of like, okay, it's got to be flexible here because I think the problem is a glo- going to be a global one. I just wonder how much money will be moving across borders and cross continents um, by the I end of all I think there's this. politics in everything. They're going to want to say, I'm giving you money. I want jobs and security. So, you know, it's going to be important if the money comes from Europe that it's supporting European jobs. Yeah. Well, like I said, I didn't mean to go down that that rabbit hole there. There was just a throw, throwaway thought. Um, but we'll, we'll, <laughs> Look, we'll I, learn I more as we move one, forward. One, part, one parting comment on that, Matt, is from a purely economics perspective, China is the cheapest. You can build chemical conversion at five to six thousand dollars a ton versus twenty-five outside of China. So, yes, they're non-integrated. They have to buy spodumen from elsewhere. They need the precursor and so on. But in terms of a capital, in terms of a total economics, China is the cheapest. Yeah. So you've got to deal so, with and, that. And, and that and that begs the question. They also are using coal in a lot of instances. So will Europe implement uh, green premiums or carbon taxes to level the playing field uh, to make um, 
you know, more economic. I believe that's starting to happen in aluminum. Um, I don't know if, you know, I think it will happen, you know, in, in lithium in time. Yeah, we've, we're talking that language um, with in, with nickel. We have this weekly nickel show, and we're, we're talking about you know passporting and tariffs and uh, premiums and also all sorts of mechanisms that may may be employed. Um, but at the, I think, but at the end of the day, I, I, I think there's a big conversation around pr- protectionism versus realism. And I, I think the, the water's getting muddied somewhat. There's a kind of big gray area there, but maybe that's one for another day. Gentlemen, I'm just conscious of the time uh, and I'm very conscious yeah. I've got to, I'm actually going to speak to Bacanora after this. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <I'll> t- <laughs> ask, ask him why he is one sixth the value of Thacker Pass. Oh, I wrote that down. Don't you worry. That's very useful. <laughs> um, General, thank you very much. I mean, you, what you provide the industry is invaluable. And thank you very much for sharing it with us. Uh, the, the club members will um, take advantage of it uh, first. And we should, uh, we should do this more regularly. Thank you. Thanks for having us on, Matt. Yes, thank you. Great to see you. And uh, happy Easter. Thanks again. Cheers, guys. <laughs> thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast? or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.